0: So we're back, and uh, this is part two of our episode on uh, Isaiah, the uh, week three of Isaiah, talking about Hezekiah and the siege of Jerusalem and what's going on there. Uh, if you missed part one, this is really going to be confusing because we're just picking right up where we left off, so go back and <laughs> listen to part one of this episode. Uh, and <laughs> We just didn't want to give you something that was longer than an hour to listen to. We wanted to try to keep it within that time frame, uh, but now we're going to move into chapter 37 and see what hezekiah's response is to this rambling but well constructed it certainly was rambling but it was very well constructed and i think i'm going to say should have been by human standards very effective attempt mm-hmm. by the Shekah to convince the the hebrews convince hezekiah and his to, to give up to give in um and they just
1: remain silent you know their trust is in god so yeah, there's a reason the Rubshaka had his office. I mean, he's very skilled at kind of provoking all the impulses of men. And so the fact that Hezekiah's counselors came back, you know, even with clothes torn yeah. and in absolute fear of what are we going to do? How are we going to make it through this? Um, you know, the fact that they were tearing their clothes shows you he he made a pretty good case. Yep. <laughs> you know, they were, they were like, oh, my goodness, like, what do we do?
0: They knew the situation was serious. That's for sure. Yeah. So chapter 37, verse 1 says, And so it was, when King Hezekiah heard it, that he tore his clothes, like they did, covered himself with sackcloth, and went into the house of the Lord. His first impulse was to go into the house of the Lord. Oh, well, I mean, he did cover himself with sackcloth first. but um, Now that sackcloth, again... That is a, a. We talked about this in the last bit with the tearing of the clothes, but again, that's like mm-hmm. a. He's grieving. He's mourning. It's it's mm-hmm. a, it's it's yeah. very it's,
1: deep emotion and a deep need. In the ancient world, they were smart and they knew that physical things connected to spiritual things. And so, you know, the practice of fasting, for instance, well, why do you fast? In part, you fast because when you think, man, I'm hungry. Oh, but wait, I can't eat. I need to go get my satisfaction from the Lord, so I'm going to pray. Like, the hunger pains reminded you to divert your eyes to the Lord. Sackcloth is the same kind of thing. If you've ever if you've ever had sackcloth on your skin or burlap or something like that, it's itchy. It's miserable. Yeah. You can't stand it. And you don't get used to it, by the way. It just keeps itching you and scratching you at different parts of your back. And so what is it doing? All the time, you're like, I want to take this off. <laughs> this is not comfortable. But every time it itches, every time it scratches, what is it doing? It's reminding you of your distress. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, the sackcloth itself just reminded you that Assyria is right outside the gates. Right. Um, and so a perpetual, constant reminder of, of what was going on. And by the way, when it says he went into the house of the Lord – all the commentaries will agree. He's not actually going inside the temple when it talks about into the house of the Lord. That also means the courtyards. Right. Um, so you remember King Uzziah from a few episodes ago was, was really bold and proud and said, I deserve to be in the house of the Lord, even though kings or anybody who wasn't a Levite was prohibited from going sure. into the temple. So he's not actually going into the physical temple. He's yeah. going into the courts.
0: Yeah, he went to he went to where uh, a Hebrew man would be allowed to go. Correct. Yeah. Um, and so after he goes into the house of the Lord wearing sackcloth, verse 2 tells us that then he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, Shebna the scribe, and the elders of the priests, covered with sackcloth, all of them, to Isaiah the prophet, son of Amos. That's like, we're going to reach out to get the word of the Lord. It's like, mm-hmm. I, I'm going to the house of the Lord, and now I need to hear the word of the Lord, and I know... That Isaiah is going to have the word of the Lord, um, verse three, and they said to him, "Thus says Hezekiah, this day is a day of trouble and rebuke and blasphemy, for the children have come to birth, but there is no strength to bring them forth." The idea there is that uh, what somebody, a mother who is uh, in childbirth, it doesn't have the the strength to complete mm-hmm. it, does, can't keep pushing. It's time for it's time for a C section, that's what he's saying.
1: (laughs) Right. Or or we know that there's there's hope, but we are so sapped of strength that we don't have we we can't push. Like there's nothing in us to bring forth any deliverance or new life. Um we're just we can't do it. We're done. So verse four, they continue. It may be that the
0: Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabshakeh. That doesn't mean that they don't think God heard. It's, <laughs> it's like they're they're like you know maybe God will hear these words and take some action here, whom his master the king of Assyria has sent to reproach the living God, and will rebuke the words which the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, mm-hmm. lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. So they go to they go to Isaiah and say, we're in a lot of trouble. You know, we're, as you said, we're tapped out. We can't, you know, we can't continue here in our own strength. You've heard what he said about you, yeah. you know. Maybe, maybe you're going to take offense at that. And Isaiah, would you pray for us?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what they're hoping, you can imagine the, the chief, you know, the chief of staff for Hezekiah Eliakim, you know, he's there when – When this servant of the king of Assyria is going on and on and he's blaspheming God and he's talking all this and there's a part of – you know, they have no hope in their own army. So you got to imagine they're there going, ooh, he's blaspheming God. Oh, keep talking. Keep talking. (laughs) You know, hoping that the Lord is going to get so angry that he just sends down lightning bolts. And so when they when they come to Isaiah, he's like, man, this guy said some really ugly things about the Lord. I wouldn't be surprised if the Lord really needs to <laughs> step in and put these guys in their place because they said some really bad things about God. And it's like, you know, they're calling on the Lord through Isaiah to come and defend his name, you know, to, to seek retribution for their blasphemy.
0: They're asking Isaiah to pray for the remnant that is left. I think that that's probably a significant term to Isaiah mm-hmm. because the Lord has been promising Isaiah and promising that there will be a remnant.
1: So they're like they're like it's us. We're the remnant. <laughs> and it, and it's not just that, by the way. When Hezekiah made the decision to jump in bed politically with Egypt and Assyria came and swooped down and conquered all these cities. If you read the Sennacherib Prism, which you can go there's translations of it, you can Google it. It talks about how many people they took back. From these captured cities into captivity. And so he's already taken massive amounts of the people of Judah away from these conquered cities off into exile with cruelty. And so their prayer is like, man, there's not many left. Like, what's in Jerusalem? Here we are. <laughs> like, please lift up your prayer for the remnant that's left here, because most of the people of Judah that are outside of Jerusalem are already gone. Yeah. Like, this is dire, dire situation.
0: Verse 5, so the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah. Verse 6, they get their answer from Isaiah, the word of the Lord. And Isaiah said to them, thus you shall say to your master, thus says the Lord do not be afraid of the words which you have heard with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Now, I want to take a pause here for just one second. You know, all the times I've picked on the ESV, I'm going to pick on the New King James Version here for a second. <laughs> that word, which the servants of the king of Assyria, that's not quite right. It's like the word is Nahar, and it's, and, and it basically, the ESV actually gets closer. They say, um, they call them young men. Um, but the the New International Version, I think, is best, where it says, underlings. Um, the <laughs> Lord basically, you know, this Rabshakeh and these two powerful generals, they were no doubt strutting around, you know, their importance. It's like, hey, come on, make a deal with me. I'm here on behalf of the king of Assyria, the great king. I'm his servant. And all of that stuff going on. And yet the Lord is like, look. Uh, don't bother me with what these little what these little children have to say.
1: <laughs> these flunkies, yeah. Yeah, flunkies. Lackeys. That's, that's
0: what they are. Lackeys. Um, so it is it is sort of a dismissive term. You know, the Lord is saying, I heard him. You know, did, did you hear? Him? Oh yeah, I heard him. The Lord heard I him. I heard all that blasphemy. Yes. And then he says, he gives the, the the prophecy here, the answer in one word, one one verse, verse seven. Surely I will send a spirit upon him. And he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. So mm-hmm. the the answer from Isaiah back to Hezekiah is pretty short. I mean, it's mm-hmm. short and sweet. Yeah, I heard him. I'll take care of it. Mm-hmm.
1: And and we know that this actually gets fulfilled both from the Bible and outside the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, Sennacherib will end up going back to his homeland, and he has two of his sons that plot to kill him. And they do. He dies. They run away, and his one of his other sons actually takes the throne. But right when he gets back from what we're going to see later on in the chapter, the reason why he goes back to his homeland, when he goes, he is <laughs> murdered by his own kids. So verse 8 uh, tells us, Then the Rabshakeh
0: returned and found the king of Assyria warring against Libna, for he heard that he had departed from Lachish. Um, and the king heard concerning Tirhaka, these names are going to kill me, sir. So. Uh, Tirhaka, <laughs> Jeff, Jeff, call him Jeff. Now, Tom, the <laughs> king of Ethiopia, uh, he has come out to make war with you. So, when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah. So, I want to pause for a second to kind of set the scene as to what's going on here. The uh, this king of Ethiopia, the uh, commenta- commentaries all agree, was leading a band of Egyptians. So it was a force from the from Egypt. So the thing that he didn't want to happen, the thing that Sennacherib didn't want to happen, which is Egypt's going to attack me, then Judah's going to attack me, it has started to happen. Egypt mm-hmm. is fighting with him. So Egypt has come join the battle at this point. Um, and that kind of raises the stakes, I think, for Sennacherib. He wants, yeah. to, he wants to force this thing with Hezekiah now.
1: Yeah, so Egypt knows <laughs> What everybody else knows, if we don't act now, we're going to be the last players and there's going to be no one else to fight with us. So we may as well make a stand now. And so they send out to fight with them at this place that's um, called Libna, which is actually in the Sinai Peninsula. So it's like right at the gates of Egypt, right? As you're about to make your way there, this is where this great battle happens and Egypt actually does move. But what you're going to find is Assyria is going to conquer Everything, including all of Egypt. And if you're ever in the Bible and you're reading, uh, Ethiopia is also called Cush. So in some of the other translations, it will say the king of Cush. Um, But Egypt and Cush every once in a while are – they kind of merge into one and have one person reigning over them. And that's what you're going to see in this particular time period where the king of Ethiopia is commanding Egypt.
0: So Sennacherib is going to send, he's sending messengers, he's going to send a letter to Hezekiah, and this is what he says, verse 10, thus you shall speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Okay, now I'm going to give you respect, Hezekiah, king of Judah. I'm going to acknowledge you're the (laughs) king, saying, do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you, saying, Jerusalem shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. So at this point, now the king of the Assyrians is appealing king to king. Let me tell you something, your God is trying to deceive you.
1: And I'm I, in fairness to him, I'm sure he's probably given this speech to everybody who's fallen before this point. Yep. You know, yep. your God is not going to save you, and they didn't. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> you see, I'm sure this is probably a rehearsed speech.
0: And it's one in which he's feigning some sort of camaraderie with Hezekiah. Look, 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 look. It's not your fault. I understand. Your mm-hmm. God has deceived you. He's led you astray. Just Hey, come come on. All
1: is forgiven. Come here, Hezzy. Let's hug mm-hmm. it out. Let's take it into Hug Harbor. Let's go, man. If you remember Ahaz, what did Ahaz do when Assyria came through and conquered Syria or Aram? He goes up and he's like, oh, we want to worship these gods. They're clearly more powerful. Yeah. Um. And, and so what is he communicating? Hey, your god is not going to save you any more than any of these other gods have. Come on our team. Worship our gods. We're clearly more powerful. I mean, all that is – Insinuated in this comment. Yeah. And just in case he's not tracking, verse 11 Look, you have heard
0: what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands by utterly destroying them. And shall you be delivered? Like, you know our reputation. We've earned it. Verse 12 <laughs> Have the gods of those nations delivered those whom my fathers have destroyed? Gozen and Haran and Rezeph and the people of Eden who were in Telasar. Where, verse 13, where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, and the king of the city of Sefervayim? See, got it that time. Hey, Uh, there you go. (laughs) (laughs) Hannah and Iva, And Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And what's the next thing he does? And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord (laughs) and spread it before the Lord. That's so cool, though, really. Seriously, it's like this is the worst possible thing he could find in that envelope, which is you're out of time, Hesey. Make a decision. I'm coming for you. You know what we do to our enemies. And Hezekiah doesn't even answer at this point. He just turns to God and goes, God, it's this. This is my problem. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, you mentioned this in personal worship this morning about how you know people who do this, you know regularly where you just kind of lay your cares down before the Lord, and here he actually is doing this physically, you know, taking this threat and literally laying it down to the before the Lord and trusting him with it. And He doesn't know how it's going to turn out. He doesn't – you know, apart from what Isaiah says, he knows, you know, that the Lord is dismissive of this, but it's like he's coming with these insults and he lays it before the Lord. So it's like, you know, Hezekiah has these servants who are going – and and serving as ambassadors and then they bring word back to to Hezekiah but unlike Ahaz who you know dismissed God and did everything on his own Hezekiah is realizing, I am but an ambassador to the Lord. I'm going to bring this message as they brought it to me. Now I'm bringing this message to the Lord because he is the one who reigns. He is the one who's going to have to lead this battle. Um, It's an incredible picture of humility that Hezekiah's first response is not, oh, quick, get the horses, get this ready, get that ready. It's no, I need to go before the Lord. He's the only one who can deliver us.
0: And then Hezekiah, instead of sending to Isaiah a second time, verse 15, then Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. Like, I'm going right to God with this, saying, verse 16, O Lord of hosts, which is a a military term, basically Mm -hmm. acknowledging that my army's not big enough, Lord, but yours is big enough. He's the Lord of hosts. God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim, you are God. You alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made "'Heaven and earth, incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. "'Open your eyes, O Lord, and see and hear "'all the words of Sennacherib, "'which he has sent to reproach the living God. "'Truly, Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste "'all the nations and their lands "'and have cast their gods into the fire, "'for they were not gods, "'but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. "'Therefore they destroyed them. "'Now, therefore, O Lord our God, "'save us from his hand.' That all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord, you alone. Um, it's a that's a, actually honestly that's a beautiful prayer. I love this guy. It is. Ezekiah is just awesome. He's he's being realistic. He's acknowledging the situation. Lord, it's true. These guys have overrun everyone. They've destroyed everything in their path. But I know you can. That you can save
1: us here. Yeah. Um, and the, tremendous faith. I, the Lord is going to give him a response, but I love, you know, one of the other things that you find in Second Chronicles 32. Um, so Hezekiah is going to leave the Lord's presence, and he goes out, and he gives a speech to the people in a city, and it's kind of this brave heart moment, mm-hmm. but I love what he says. He says, be strong and courageous do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of assyria and all the horde that is with him for there are more with us than with him what does he mean by that they're severely outnumbered right but it's the lord of hosts yep all the all the armies of heaven are on our side so do not fear the king of assyria and the all the horde that is with him for there are more with us than with him what a cool thought and he says, with him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And it says, and the people took confidence from the words of Hezekiah, the king of Judah. I want a king like that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just, yeah. He is awesome. I love this guy. Yeah. Um, incredible faith.
0: You know, and spreading you know, the, the, the act of spreading out the letter, that that transfer of the anxiety like Lord. I can't even hold this in my hands. This is killing me. I'm going to spread it out in front of you, and we're going to talk about it. Um, and he pours out his heart to God. Um, yeah. I think that it's. I think it's a great prayer because it, you know one of the things that is really true here is that if you look at this prayer, Hezekiah doesn't ask him for anything. Mm-hmm. Hezekiah doesn't like. He doesn't run through the details. He he acknowledges before the Lord what this is about. The Assyrians are coming. But then what he does is he worships God in his prayer. He he recites in his prayer who God is. He's the creator. He alone is God. He's the Lord of hosts. He's the living one. What he's doing there is just worshiping God in prayer. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, Yeah. And all of the ways that they have tried to cast fear into our hearts by pointing at how all the other gods have failed, it's like Hezekiah's faith is unshakable there. He's even like – you know, they cast their gods in the fire because they weren't gods. Right. They were wooden stone. But you, God, you will not fail us. Save us from the hand. Like it's, his faith is just remarkable yeah. here.
0: And that was a, that was one thing that you know, when we talk about ancient history, ancient peoples, every, every group seemed to have their own set of gods. And one of the things that was always true was – Although I didn't have to worship the other guy's gods, I didn't have to like say anything nice about the other guy's gods. I just had to have a, me- a measure of respect, a measure mm-hmm. of decorum, because you know, like, hey, my gods work for me. Your gods work for you. Where have we heard this before? As long as it's you know, as long as it's what, as long as it what works for you, that's all that matters. But the you know, the people of Yahweh, the people who followed Yahweh, Lord, they genuinely had a different attitude. It's like Yahweh is God alone. Mm -hmm. The rest of them are not gods. They're tinker toys. They're toys that have been made by hands. And that was very unusual. It was was far more usual in that time, really very common for them. They may have said, my gods are greater. That's why we're going to go to war and we'll see whose god is greater. That's fine. But they didn't say, your gods don't exist. Um, And Hezekiah is like, those aren't even gods. Mm -hmm. I shouldn't even mention them in the same sentence with you.
1: Yeah. And what you, Assyria has its own sets of gods. Sure. But you notice that Sennacherib, he never comes and says on, you know, I am bringing these gods and their power. It's always me, my armies. I mean, they, they come and the, talking, they're functional atheists. And Hezekiah, in response, doesn't say, oh, yeah, well, me and my armies. <laughs> you know, it's, he's totally pointing to, the, to Yahweh, yeah. to the Lord of Israel.
0: Then something nice happens here, Sam. Hezekiah doesn't have to wait. Isaiah sends him an answer. It says, then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah saying, thus says the Lord God of Israel, because you have prayed to me against Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word which the Lord has spoken concerning him. It's like, can you imagine for just <laughs> one second what a moment of exhale that would be? It's like, God heard my prayer. Mm-hmm. God heard my prayer.
1: That would be super powerful.
0: Yeah. I mean, at that moment, I could just imagine the feeling of the tension draining out through the soles of his feet, Yeah, where Hezekiah says, God yeah. heard me.
1: You know, there's something else here that just dawned on me, so this is straight from brain to mouth. <laughs> um,
0: That's okay. But, maybe it'll, Maybe it'll get edited then. We'll see.
1: <laughs> but I love, you know, what does the Lord do here? He doesn't. It would be cool if he responded directly to Hezekiah, but I think he's also teaching us something here. And that, you know, Isaiah holds an office that is purely spiritual. You know, he's, he's a prophet where Hezekiah is a person of power. He represents the state. And when God gives the response to Hezekiah, he holds the spiritual office to give guidance to the political office. Mm -hmm. So it's like he goes to Isaiah and says, in your role, you are to then speak to the political role, and he holds it above. And I, you know, I think that might be instructive even even still to this day that when, when we look in our country and we're wondering where salvation comes from, for the love of Pete, it is going to come through the prophetic voice of the church preaching the gospel, not the halls of Congress or the White House. And I think it's fascinating that God comes and wants Hezekiah to know I speak through Isaiah. Um, yeah. I, I'm giving dignity to the prophetic office of my people, my church, um, to hold sway here, and I think that's intentional. And I think it applies to us too. So let's see what uh, Isaiah responds with. Uh, sort
0: of a, po- it's a poem, is what you know. He's it's in a poetic form. Um, but let's look at what he says first to Sennacherib. Then there's a message to Hezekiah in there. But let's start with what he's saying first to Sennacherib. This is what's, this is his prophecy concerning him. The virgin, the daughter of Zion, has despised you, laughed you to scorn. The daughter of Jerusalem has shaken her head behind your back. Whom have you reproached and blasphemed? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted up your eyes on high? Against the Holy One of Israel. That's great right there because <laughs> the, he's, he's starting off by saying, you know what? You think Jerusalem is scared of you, but they're laughing. Do you know why they're laughing? Because they know who you've picked a fight
1: with. (laughs) That's cool. You know? That's awesome.
0: It's like they're thinking, oh, man, you've done it now.
1: Yeah. You know, know, during those negotiations, they're like, keep talking, keep talking, (laughs) (laughs) keep blaspheming. (laughs) And the Lord is acknowledging,
0: you know what? Against whom have you raised your voice? Against the Holy One of Israel. Verse twenty-four: By your servants you have reproached the Lord, and said, "By the multitude of my chariots I have come up to the height of the mountains, to the limits of Lebanon." He's boasting here. His son of Cherub is boasting. I will cut down its tall cedars and its choice cypress trees. I will enter its farthest height to its fruitful forest. I'm going to take whatever I want of the of the natural resources you have, the things you think make you wealthy. I'm taking them. This is boastful. Behavior by the Assyrians. I have dug and drunk water, and with the soles of my feet I have dried up all the brooks of defense. So this is, the, you know, the Lord is saying, I, "I hear you. I know what you're saying. You're pretty proud of yourself." Verse 26 <laughs> comes the comes the the hammer. God drops the hammer now. Did you not hear long ago how I made it from ancient times that I formed it? Now I have brought it to pass that you should be for crushing fortified cities into heaps of ruins. Therefore, their inhabitants had little power. They were dismayed and confounded. They were as the grass of the field and the green herb, as the grass on the housetops and the grain blighted before it is grown. But I know your dwelling place. You're going out and you're coming in and your rage against me because your rage against me and your tumult have come up to my ears. Therefore, and this is going to be this is really impactful language here. I will put my hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips, and I will turn you back by the way which you came. I That wow. right there, God is saying, this is what the Assyrians did to the people they conquered. Yeah. God is saying, I'm going to do to you what you do to other people. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. You, you conquered my people in, in humiliation, put a hook through their nose and led them away. I'm going to do the same to you, but I love. It. it almost feels like this response is almost Job-like, you know, where you know Assyria, the Sinasrab's like, "Oh yes, I've conquered this and I've conquered that, and I took this land and those trees." And God's like, "You realize, like, have you heard long ago? Like, I made all this stuff. The ground you're walking on, I'm in charge of it. I made it. That's mine. You know, don't you come bragging to me." Um, and I've allowed everything that you've done. And by the way, you wonder like why the Lord would allow these fortified cities to fall into heap of ruins. One, it's judgment because they had fallen into incredible wickedness. But what also happens through this uh, diaspora where the Jews are cast all over the world, this is going to happen again when, with Babylon – but when the Jews are cast all over the world, guess what they take with them? It's the faithful faith, yeah. remnant. They take yeah. their faith and they start building these synagogues and teaching prophecies of the hope of a Savior to come and a Messiah. And when you get to the New Testament, it's one of my favorite things because if, if you're one of these exiles that has been cast out and led by a hook into a foreign land, you're wondering what in the world could God possibly be doing? But as they're in these foreign lands all through Assyria and Babylon and Turkey and Greece and Egypt and Alexandria, all this, what are they doing? They're spreading the prophecy that there's going to come a king. There's going to come a king, one who's going to save and rescue the world, you know. And so when the gospel happens and the Apostle Paul and the early church are thinking, where should we go – where can we go every place they go guess where they find they find synagogues in all of these cities that have been teaching that a savior's coming and it's like all these lands have just been soaking in the kerosene of the hope of a savior for centuries and when the gospel comes and the apostles go out just the slightest spark sets the world on fire so even god allowing this you wonder what's his purpose here what's he doing He is setting the stage for his kingdom through the gospel to explode. There's no way in the world any of these exiles could have seen that. They had no idea what God was possibly doing through their pain, through their suffering, through their exile, and yet God had his purposes. So when he says, I've allowed you to do this for my ends, we go, what could those ends possibly be? Man, the Lord is a master strategist, and he is preparing the kingdom of God to overtake the world through yeah. his son,
0: and, and it's very definitely true that the church has the has always grown best. The word has spread best under persecution.
1: Yeah, no doubt, no doubt.
0: You know, it's when we don't have hope in anything else um, that the Lord comes along and and shows us that He's the one that can be relied on. Um, This is a great, it's a great speech because he basically goes through, he ticks all the boxes here. He's like, look, I hear you. I understand what you're boasting about. You have no idea who you're dealing with, but I'm going to tell you what's going to happen to you. I'm going to put my hook through your nose at the end. (laughs) And then he has a word for Hezekiah. In verse 30, there's a pivot here. This shall be a sign to you, speaking now to Hezekiah. You shall eat this year such as grows of itself. In other words, the food you're going to get this year is not going to be crops and livestock, but there's going to be sufficient food in what grows wild. You're not going to starve. You're going to find enough to eat there in the land. And the second year, what springs from the same? Second year, same as the first. And in the third year, sow and reap, plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. God is giving this prophecy to him that's saying within three years, you guys are going to be, once again, growing crops, eating your own food. You know, you're going to be restored mm-hmm. back to fruitfulness here within three years. Yeah. That's going to be a sign to them. I mean, it's, the Lord is making a prophecy here. If that doesn't happen, Sam, they're going to know God isn't true. But
1: yeah. yeah, and This is a bold statement. But one of the – and I don't want to sit on this for a moment. But one of the things you find in Scripture is God's deliverance always comes on threes. So it's the third year that Judah, in a sense – has this resurrection. And you find the third, you'll find it other places in Hezekiah's life, but that's not an accident. It's pointing you to something.
0: Yeah, Um, Verse 31, and the remnant who have escaped of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward, for out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and those who escape from Mount Zion, the zeal of the Lord of hosts, (laughs) will do this.
1: Yeah, that's what we were talking about. Yeah. You know, they're gonna, they're gonna take root downward. Those that have been taken away from the house of Judah, they're gonna take root downward. They're gonna dig in, but eventually fruit will bear upward. You know, this is not in vain. This, this suffering is not in vain. And it's
0: going to be done because of the zeal, God's zeal for his people. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, God is doing it on behalf of his people. So then, the Lord is going to finish this up by really laying down the smack on our friend Sennacherib. <laughs> Verse 33, Therefore thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, He shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shield, nor build a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return, and he shall not come into this city, says the Lord. Verse 35, For I will defend this city to save it. Why? For my own sake and for my servant David's sake. That, again, if I'm Hezekiah, at that point, I'm just going to collapse in the chair and say, okay.
1: You're jumping and fist pumping in the air. I love when God talks smack like this. It's going to be good.
0: I mean, the the Lord's like, not only are you not going to lose, there's not going to be a fight. He's not going to touch you. He's not even going to shoot an arrow over the wall or build a siege mound. Nothing. Yeah. Yeah,
1: He's relax, not going to do Hezekiah. anything. I got this. Yeah. I got this. Yeah,
0: um, uh, That's that. powerful, you know, because it is, it's not, Hey, you know what? You fight as hard as you can and I'll come alongside you and by the skin of our teeth together, we'll make it. No, <laughs> the Lord is confidently telling Hezekiah, don't worry about it. I got this guy's not even coming through the door. Not even going to shoot an arrow in your city.
1: God, you imagine the relief Hezekiah has to be feeling. I mean, because like I said, tail of the tape, disaster yeah. is certain. And here God is saying, "Not even an arrow is coming. I got this." Yeah. I mean, just, Hezekiah's got to be just leaping up. It's like you know they've they've awakened this you know powerful force that has been silent to this point seemingly, and now it's like it's on. It's on.
0: At verse 36, we see what the Lord does. Then the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when people arose early in the morning, there were the corpses all dead. So, so Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went away, returned home and remained at Nineveh. Now it came to pass as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, that his sons Adrammelech, I'm going with that, and Sharzer. Sh- Sharezer. Sharezer. We're going with Sharezer. Struck him down with the sword and they escaped into the land of Ararat. Then Isar Haddon. There we're going with that one. I'm working S-R-Haddon. on Isar Haddon. Isar Haddon. Okay. I gave it a long E. But so,
1: right. so, one of the little tidbits of useless information sure. if you ever watched the movie Contact, yes, you remember the, the wealthy benefactor who funds everything? His name is S. R. Haddon. Oh, it's it's a little toy they're playing with this name. Esser oh, that's Haddon. interesting.
0: I didn't know that. Uh, I'll have to uh, watch the movie. I've only watched the movie once, I think, but it was a good movie. I thought I yeah. enjoyed it. Yeah. I like sci-fi flicks like that. Um, but then Esser Haddon, his son, uh, reigned in his place. So you know, it's interesting because we, we talk about you know, hey, are these things historical? Do they? Is there any? Re- Seems to me that if one hundred eighty-five thousand. <laughs> assyrians died there should be some record of it Mm -hmm. the interesting thing is i did a little digging into this and there are historical records about and although it doesn't say the angel of the lord came and slew the assyrians Mm -hmm. there is record of something from this time period that talks about a great plague which they blamed on rats or mice or something you know had had sickened and killed a bunch of the assyrians um, which, if you think about it, the Assyrians aren't going to go back home and go, the angel of the Lord killed us. For one thing, he <laughs> killed everybody. The rest of you were asleep. You didn't see it. Um, but, you know, it's, but there does seem to be, have been something that befell their army that wiped out an awful lot of them.
1: Yeah, so you have two, two different sources, at least, that make reference to this. Before Jesus, So so in between the time of um, – you know Hezekiah and Sennacherib all the way down in all the BC years you have two different sources that give accounts of this one of them is Herodotus who's considered you know the father of Greek history and he talks about how in the middle of the night now he it's less divine in his telling is that mice came through and they chewed up all the bows and shields and everything else and then they were made easy to rout and they were entirely wiped out by the army That's Sennacheribs and and some of that is plague from the mice and all this stuff. But anyway, what Herodotus notes is an unbelievable, miraculous victory happened when there should have been no chance of Assyria winning. So that's one of them. But then there's another one, um, a guy named Barossus Chaldeus who's writing in the third century BC and he writes this, that the gods sent a pestilential – I'm quoting him – the gods sent a pestilential distemper, so some kind of pestilence through mice or whatever. He's arguing upon Sennacherib's army, and on the very first night of the siege, a hundred fourscore and five thousand. Which, if you do, you know, fourscore and five thousand. See, a hundred four a score is twenty, so a one hundred fourscore that's eighty, and five thousand, which comes to the exact number of one hundred eighty-five thousand, with their captains. And their generals were destroyed, and being in great fear for his whole army, he fled with the rest of his forces to his own kingdom, to his city Nineveh. So you've got Herodotus who mentions some kind of miraculous victory. You've got Barossus Chaldeus who almost gives you know the precise <laughs> account of this. And then even when you look at Sennacherib's prism, he talks about how he conquered all the walled cities of Judah. He talks about how he conquered Egypt and all the other places. But he admits that he never conquered Jerusalem. And if you look at a map, I love this, but if you look online or Google or whatever and try to find a map of the Assyrian Empire, it's massive. It conquers everything, the land of the Hittites, the Elamites, the Babylonians, the Israel, Sam- Samaria, Syria, the Sinai, Egypt. Everywhere is conquered but you'll see a little circle <laughs> that is not conquered that's right around the city of Jerusalem, because even the historians will admit that this mighty empire that conquered everything, everything, couldn't conquer Jerusalem. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. <laughs> they, they conquered Memphis, of Egypt, they conquered all of the major cities. They couldn't conquer Jerusalem, which couldn't hold a candle to some of these other cities. Why? What, how, how do you answer that? Well. The Lord got up and said, an arrow will not come into the city and wiped out 185,000 of their soldiers, um, which is unbelievably – like you can imagine what it would have been like to wake up that next morning, to walk out, to survey the landscape outside the city and to see all of the enemies dead and your enemy running and you did nothing. Um, And so – Church history and tradition tells us, even going back a long, long way, that Psalm 46 was written on the, the aftermath of that battle where they woke up and saw God's faithfulness and wrote Psalm 46. I love reading that psalm with this in mind, the kind of relief that God showed up and fought for his people. And by the way, the angel of the Lord, typically all throughout Scripture, that is the Lord himself. It's not an angel. He went out and fought for them. Um, It's the angel of the Lord in the burning bush. It's the angel of the Lord. It's almost always God himself. Mm -hmm. And so God himself went out and fought for his people. Why? To protect the line of the Messiah because your salvation and my salvation and Hezekiah's salvation and all of the people he loves, their salvation was wrapped up in the defense of that city.
0: Yeah,
1: Which is – Mind-boggling to think of his love for us. But he will fight. He will fight for that.
0: And when we have these things, like this particular story, where um, there, is a, there is a very uh, a, a miraculous, let's say, uh, certainly, certainly unlikely on a scale that pr- approaches the miraculous uh, thing that happened, which is the Assyrian yeah. army would be turned back from Jerusalem. God leaves us these things, I think, as sort of signposts as stakes in mm-hmm. the ground to say look look at your history books look look back you're going to you'll find out this happened i did mm-hmm. this you know it's like it's one of those things where some of the things the lord does like this thing here you look at it you go well, that'll leave a mark <laughs> <laughs> and it did you know yeah. it left a mark there's ways that we can verify that this remarkable thing happened that the assyrians were turned back from jerusalem and never conquered it Um, that I think is the purpose of these things. You know, it's like the Lord puts those details in there, tells us these stories, leaves them there for us so that they can be an encouragement to our faith so that we can know he is the God who acts to preserve his people and his, and as you said, to preserve the Messiah, the line of the Messiah and our salvation. Um, what I was going to mention here at the end of this is that, um, the commentaries that I read all agreed about this. They said that between verse 37 and verse 38, which is why it starts with now it came to pass that about 20 years passed. So that was something that I found. Yeah. I kind of scratched my head a little bit and and this is, I don't really have an answer for it. So this is mouth to brain, you know, like we were saying before may not be the, (laughs) may not be the most clever words that come out of my mouth today. Um, But for whatever reason, the Lord allowed some time to pass because there was a, there were two prophecies given about Sennacherib. One was, "I'm going to turn you away and lead you back, lead you out of here." Like, "I'm going to fall on you, do to you what you've been doing to other people," and that's what happened to him on that night. He got his army got destroyed and he got sent away. But if we forget, there was a there was. A prophecy back in all the way back in verse 7 of chapter 37 here where isaiah said and he will die by the sword in his own land um mm-hmm. and so there was a there was like 20 years passed between that and i just there's again there's part of me this is again mark's mark's fanciful scripture interpretation but i'm wondering that son of cherub is, is about thinking yeah yeah right I'm going to die by the sword in my own land. He was wrong about that one. <laughs> and then his sons kill him. Yeah. <laughs> there's actually, um, I and I talked about this in uh, personal worship this week. It's free for history nerds. But there is a, there's a Jewish legend, uh, and it's just a legend. It's not in the Bible anywhere. But there's a Jewish legend that... Uh, When Sennacherib returned, that he became sort of obsessed with the idea of why is this God so powerful on behalf of the Hebrews? Why, you know, who is the, he was, I couldn't beat them. Their Lord fought for them. And that really rattled him like he couldn't handle it. And so he started asking around and somebody told him, well, their God favors them because Abraham was willing to sacrifice his own son. And that Sennacherib, based on that, said, well, okay. I'll get him to favor me twice as much. I'm going to kill two of mine. And the sons got word of it before he was able to do it. And those were the sons that killed him and fled. I have no idea if that is true, but the the mere fact that there is this legend in Jewish history and the stunning irony of that. I'm like, I'm hoping that turns out to be true story. (laughs) Don't know if it's true or not, but I do have the source for that legend. If anybody wants to know it is, it's a real thing, but it's not, I mean, it's, it could be made up, but I think it's real. I think it fits the it fits the guy so well, doesn't it? Yeah, it
1: works for me. Yeah, <laughs> we'll we'll go with it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> with the disclaimer, this could be entirely made. This up. This could be
0: entirely made up. This could have been nothing, nothing. didn't happen like this at all. But
1: yeah, but it's it is so like you know, being the history nerd and looking at those traditions. There's so much evidence that points to these kinds of stories. Like even S. R. Haddon, the son. Um He's going to be the one that's king of Assyria when Manasseh, Hezekiah's son, comes along. And there's mentions of Manasseh in S.R. Haddon's writings. It's kind of fascinating. Um We find seals. This is just a little side tangent. But we found lots of seals from King Hezekiah. So when he would issue an official seal and put a stamp into the clay to seal a letter or something, we found tons of them. And what's interesting about Hezekiah's seals is – For the early part of his kingship, his seal was a picture of a scarab, which is the symbol of Egypt. It's very sacred in Egyptian culture. And that was who Hezekiah was putting his faith in. But And you can go to Isaiah 30. That's when the Lord comes to Hezekiah and says, hey, and literally he says, woe to those who carry out plans that are not mine forming an alliance, but not by my spirit, heaping sin upon sin who go down to Egypt without consulting me who look for help to Pharaoh's protection and to Egypt for shade from refuge. And so what happens is initially his seals, and you can Google them, you can find lots of them on there, is a picture of a scarab, but right in the middle of Hezekiah's reign, he switches his seal and all of a sudden his seals become a winged sun shining down on the people, which was, you know, the way that the Psalms talked about the Lord and mm-hmm. um, and and it's fascinating that and and just even in his stamp signatures you see Hezekiah's change of heart and all of the the writings of the Assyrians you you see all of this recorded it's just it's really pretty pretty wonderful even in that that city of Lachish you where the the Assyrians conquered you find altars that Hezekiah had broken down that we still have where he went and smashed some of the altars um that date right to the time of Hezekiah. It's it's pretty wonderful, like, when you read this, to just be encouraged in your faith that what you're reading on the page, archaeologists are digging up out of the ground. Yeah.
0: Because I know that people will ask, because I've been asked, what's the point of these stories from the the Old Testament? (laughs) You know, what's the point of all of these stories of death and destruction? Why doesn't – I guess they just want God to give happy stories. I, I mean, I don't know. Um, but as we've talked about, the point of them, first of all, is that they are a historical reference. So it's something that we can read and verify and be, and, and therefore look at the Bible with the sense that this is a, this is a true and historical book. When it tells us things, it's true. Mm-hmm. But in addition to that, like you said, I think the message that we take away from this is that God has had a plan since the Garden of Eden. God has had a plan to bring redemption to his people. And it it was his plan that that line of redemption would run through Jerusalem. And even though the rest of the world came against it, I mean, the Assyrians representing all that was evil in the world came against it to try to squeeze it out. God would preserve a remnant because his son had to come because that redemption that he promised back in Genesis 3 had to come through Jerusalem, through his people, through Jerusalem his through David and through and down through the lineage to to
1: Jesus. I mentioned this before, but when you read this story when the Assyrians are camped outside of Jerusalem at risk, I mean in the mind of God who is sovereign, uh, you know, omniscient, he knows all things, if they wipe out the line, God's promise is done. You know, you he can't hold it anymore, and so your redemption would be wiped out. And how does the Lord Respond to the prospect of your eternal life being wiped out by the Assyrians. It rouses his anger so much that he wipes out 185,000 of them in a night. That is how fiercely God protects his promise of salvation to me. That's wonderful. Yeah.
0: Hmm. Well, and that is a good word. Um, I think that's one we're going to end our little history lesson on today. Uh Folks, I hope that you've enjoyed your time with us. i uh, I really enjoyed the story of Hezekiah. I, yeah, me too. Hezekiah has. Uh, let's be honest, Sam. He's got a bit of a stumble coming
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, at the at the end of his life. Uh, there's a little weirdness that goes on with a sickness and, and and his life being extended. And when he's old, he has his issues. Mm-hmm. Um, but at this part in Hezekiah's prime, as a as a godly king. Man, it was just so refreshing to see a king of Judah turning to the Lord when something bad happened. Um, I was glad yeah. to have a good king.
1: Yeah, me too. Yeah. <laughs> I like the outcome too. Yes, I do and like And by it. the way, you know, one of the things we've said before as you read the Old Testament, one of the things that it is beating into your head is there is a shortage, <laughs> a dire shortage of heroes. Yeah. who can really bring righteousness, who can bring justice and peace. Every figure of the Old Testament, no matter how great they are, fall. Yeah. And it makes you long for a hero that will not fall, that will not fail.
0: Yeah.
1: Thankfully, we have one. Yes. His name is Jesus. We do.
0: Well, folks, if you'd like to correspond with us, we invite you to do so. Our email address is water at com. That's R-I-O. Vistachurch.com, where you can find all the back episodes of the Out of Water podcast at RioVistachurch.com slash Out of Water. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and on Spotify. You can find it in our Rio Vista Church free smartphone app if you don't have that on your phone yet and you want to keep up with what's going on around our church, as well as get the latest episodes of the podcast. All of these things, our sermon series, everything will be available through that app as well. So we invite you to do that. Sam and I will be back next week with another from the series in the book of Isaiah, and we look forward to seeing you then.